0: We have a superstar in the house. Spoiler alert, she is the only Latina in the podcast Hall of Fame. But of course, she is so much more as you're about to discover. You don't want to miss her story. Hola, how is it going? I'm so glad you are joining me today. This is Jen Hempel, your host. And as I said earlier, we've got a superstar in the house and someone who is a podcaster that I've looked up to over the years, someone who I have learned a ton from, and someone who is a beautiful spirit. She has made me laugh so much. And as you hear her story, it will leave you wanting To hear more, let me tell you a little bit about Elsie Escobar. She is a podcasting mentor, an advocate for independent podcasters, co-founder of She Podcasts, the largest community for women and non-binary, an immigrant from El Salvador. And what she does, she drives dialogue in the podcasting industry, focusing on podcast impact on society, diversity. And culture and their power of for cell transformation. Lista, let's go meet Elsie. Bienvenida, Elsie. I am so thrilled to have you here. Finally, I don't know why it's taken so long to get you on the podcast. I don't, I don't think I've even asked, but I've had you in my <laughs> mind. But it's here, like five years later. I think. Finally, I am
1: having you on. I'm muchísimas gracias. I'm so excited to be here. I just love your work. And hey, listen, I'm just glad I'm here now. I'm just <laughs> Well, I'm excited. And what is interesting for those
0: of you who do not know Elsie, she is a veteran podcaster. So I'm going to feel like I'm at the dentist's office. Or like you have a dentist friend that's looking at your teeth. I'm wondering what she's going to be doing or thinking as we record this episode. So this is going to be fun. I am excited. Now, Elsie, on this podcast, we always start with going back. So take us back in time and tell us a little bit about your upbringing and the experiences, the lessons that you've had around money, specifically more. I know you mentioned to me a little bit about your immigrant story. So talk to
1: us. Yeah. Well, I was born in El Salvador, Central America, in San Salvador, in in the capital. And I guess you know I had a great childhood. I don't think I really have anything that was significantly impactful. i'm going to pause right there before I continue because I know yes, there was huge impact, but you know when I was a little girl till I was nine years old, eight, seven, eight years old, or that kind of stuff i it was great. I loved being there with my family, and we I don't really have any kind of memories that are just like, oh, this was really sucky. Everything was wonderful. I had, you know, my grandparents, a huge family. We often were with them. And, you know, my relationship with my paternal grandmother was very, very close. And we did everything together. And she took me to all the different places. I guess in terms of money stories at that specific time in El Salvador, she had one of her closest friends, La Nina Yuyu. (laughs) She was, interestingly enough, now I'm looking back, I believe she was Israeli and she might have been Jewish. I'm not sure. And she had a store, right? So we always went into the store, but it wasn't like a regular store. I can't even quantify it. We went into the store and it was her house, but she had stuff. She had stuff everywhere in the house, but like packages of things that she sold and so that was one of those things where i started to recognize exchange of value of things like she would give my grandmother things that were in a package and i would go like oh my gosh that was an expensive thing like there was like an understanding that this was expensive or this was fancy in some way you know i i remember those stories and Lenia yuyu was she was just such a lovely she was very full. She was a full woman. So every time she hugged me, I felt so warm in her arms and she was squishy everywhere, you know, and I, I got all those feelings which just so wonderful. I don't think, you know, and then after that, another, I guess, money story, thinking back about money was also in El Salvador, going to mass and then coming out of mass, you have all of the beggars, like all outside of the mass, they're all sitting in a big row. It's just something that you are used to right after you exit the church in mass. And I remember touching money and, you know, whenever you go to a Catholic mass, there is a part where you give las ofrendas and then the people come in and they give you the, you know, the basket and you drop money in. And so that was I feel that was possibly the most exciting part of the mass to me because <laughs> my mom would give me change and I would put it in the basket and I would look at the money go, you know, and I was like, oh, that's neat. Everybody's <laughs> giving money, You know, that was kind of cool. And there were times when I would start to hold hold on to some of that money. And I wanted to go give it to the beggars outside. And I remember that specific feeling of trying to keep some of that money back. And then my mom let me do it a couple times, but then she told me not to do it anymore. I'm sure she told me something. I can't remember. And, but I do remember thinking like that that didn't make sense. Like I didn't understand why it was okay to put it in the basket here, but I couldn't go give it to the people outside that obviously looked like they needed the money too. And so there was already a little bit of confusion when it came to that. But that's just something that, that I've thought about because there was this sense of wanting to take care of those that don't have money. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they were other. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. They were other, los pobrecitos. So that was like something that I'm assuming from the goodness of people's hearts, you name them, los pobrecitos, but in in that way, you make the mother, right? It's not us, it's them, and you can't, it's a very complicated thing, but I remember being very confused by all of that stuff. I know
0: for me, I remember, because I felt similar as you, but I remember early on having distrust From the people asking for money, because I was told, mira, la mamá los está poniendo los niños a trabajar. So I automatically, oh, I can't give any money because they're being taken advantage of. So I'm wondering if your mom knew something, you know, of what was going on. I had this distress, which is not necessarily the best thing because not everybody's out to get you
1: (laughs) or take advantage of you. Absolutely, but you know what's really interesting is that it's really its own infrastructure in looking back at it because the folks that are right outside of the church were folks that were essentially the people that we're reading about in the Bible mm. because you know in Latin American countries or at least in my country in El salvador this is I would say this was probably in the mid mid seventies. What I would see would be folks that were deeply in need of medical care. So there were missing limbs. Something was going on with one of their eyes. You could see skin disorders. Like there was obviously something medically wrong with them that needed help. And there were lots of blind people, lots of lame people, lots of the people that you hear like in the stories where it's like, you know, help the lame and the blind and all the people... And so there was that. So that's the ones that I'm thinking about. So it wasn't like they're trying to take advantage of you. Mind you, though, there was the other part of them, of the folks that were homeless maybe at times or maybe didn't have as much money as, I guess, the small middle class that was in El Salvador at that time, were the kids. But the kids are the ones that come up to your car when you're parked. And so when you're driving, when it's a red light, you have all of the kids come and they try to do stuff, entertain, do whatever, and then there's the, whatever they do, they start spraying stuff and you're like, no, no, no. And then sometimes they make it even worse. Because they're like, I don't need, but anyway, there are the kids that, and those are the ones that are like actually asking for money. And then there's the other layer, which are the ones that I never got a no for, which are when you go somewhere, like when you would go to the store, when you went to watch a movie, when you went to all this stuff, there's the other people who take care of your car. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then those are <laughs> the ones that are like, I'm going to keep an eye out it on for you. And then you give them money and they'll like. Be the security. Yeah. Right. And that's so, like, so I didn't understand the difference between all. Anyway, there's like all kinds of, there was an infrastructure within folks in there. And then you would see, like, the men were the ones that took care of the car when you went shopping so nobody would do anything to the car. Then the kids were the ones that would do the thing with the car when you were driving and you were stopped and they would just do that. And then there were the other folks who were right outside the church and there's many more (laughs) that are in between. But all this to say that I think that the majority of what that was is that it's us and them. So there is a line. That is not us. We have this. Right. So that was very clear in how I was raised. And then we immigrated into Los Angeles. So we moved to Los Angeles and started once again from that was the first time that I think everyone in my family had to get used to a whole other social culture that is not what we were used to. Because that's when I started to realize that that was a cultural thing. Now, I think that that, I didn't have words for this at all. Because in El Salvador, you don't really talk about stuff like that. Because there are, I can't say, is it a caste system or social? I don't know. What do you say? I mean, that's the way. I don't know what that would be. There are levels. There's that middle class. Social economic levels, I would say. Social economic levels but you don't move within them. Like the middle class are the ones that are the professional in the sense of like you go to the university and you get a degree, right? Then there's the other level, which are the folks that work at, you know, the mall or the stores and they sell things to you. They're the ones that are behind the counters. They're the ones that are working in the fast food joints or restaurants that's another level. And then there's the other level, which are the ones that really don't have a job, like las tortillas, las tortilleros, and then that's, you know, that they're coming down the street and then they giving you the milk and la fruta and all of that stuff where there is an exchange of food and goods and whatnot, but they would come and knock on the door and then you would just exchange money for goods. And that's another level within that, but you wouldn't go in it it's like the expectation for our family was that, you know, the kids would then have a professional job. And I'm making quotation marks now where you would be a thing. You would be a doctor, you would be a lawyer, you would be whatever that would be, but you wouldn't work at McDonald's, so to speak. And when you come to the United States, that's not there. You do all the things like anyone can be Whatever and whoever they want, obviously there's still the university systems and I'm sure that, you know, the private universities and there are all this stuff, but there's all of this free community colleges and public education where it's like, that's the majority of folks Mm -hmm. and you can actually get a job doing and start making money. And that doesn't denote your class. Okay. Like the class so that's what I think that it's the classicist system. In El Salvador, it's the classicist is the way that you are you're put into all of these places. Whereas in the US, we don't really have that much of a class system. There are some, but not in the way that it is imprinted into the culture as it was. And then my dad was an architect when we first moved to this country. And he had the privilege of being able to fly to the U S or start the process of finding a job prior to us moving to this country. And so he came to the country with a job and we moved to LA because that's where his job was as an architect at that time. But of course, as we moved here, he immediately was let go or something. So he ended up having to, you know, There was many times when my dad was doing, working two jobs at a time. He was working all the time where I think when we were younger, I don't have memories too much of him. There were many times when he was working like, you know, eight hour days and then he would continue working out whatever the second job was, which was like, he did a lot of night shift kind of stuff like that, where I wouldn't see him in the morning. And yeah, I don't know how they did it. And all I know is that, what was the biggest fear for me, or I still struggle with this, was the fact that we never had enough. Mm. So that was whether or not my parents actually spoke this out loud. They never spoke any of this out loud. We never had a sit down as a family. Nobody ever talked about money. Nobody. But the level of anxiety and fear that my mom, that I gleaned, from her behavior, I recognized that we didn't have. And that didn't make me sad. Like it didn't go like, oh, we don't have stuff. It just made me realize that we needed to save all the things because we never knew when it was going to go away Right, kind of stuff. The behavior of buying things I'm just now getting over the mind shift of investing in small things like furniture. For me, that's a huge investment. And even my parents right now are currently, they still have, they've only bought, I believe, this is so bizarre, they've only bought two couches in their life now. They've been here since like 1981. So yeah, and then the way that I've always lived and I'm still living that way. And I don't know if that's like manifestation or if it's something that I'm just, I don't know. I don't know. Is that usually we get hand-me-downs. And even now with like, I have a couple of futon mattresses that I sleep on that were given to us by somebody else. And the couches that we have in the living room were just left here by the people that lived here before. And we just kind of took them over. That's exactly, I'm doing literally exactly what my family did. Because we moved into the apartment that we moved into in LA, in Burbank, actually. And whoever was there before left a king-size pull-out bed, you know, a sofa bed. They left a full-size bed and they left a living room set. Mm-hmm. Like one of those, it was, it was very 70s. It was yellow, <laughs> very 70s with the weird chairs. And then my parents just kept it. And so that we just used them until... We didn't have them bef- anymore because they were so old. You know, people give us stuff and we just go, okay, <laughs> we'll take it.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned this because this is a reason why we talk about money stories because in my experience and in my work, those past money stories, those memories have such a direct impact into how we Think about money, how we manage money today. And I love that you're thinking, oh, did I manifest this? I'm doing exactly what they're doing. And I'm curious to know, as you're thinking to those past money stories and your memories, what do you think has either A helped or both helped or challenged you when it comes to managing your finances or just your finances in general? Either helped or How has those money stories helped or challenged you?
1: I think that one thing that it has helped me with is to understand, and I think that this is something that I feel sometimes alone in. Thankfully, my husband, partner, we vibe on the same feel around this. We've never spoken about this kind of stuff, but we are not materialistic. And so in terms of like having material goods reflect or give us joy, comfort, making us feel good about ourselves, like we have zero attachment to our things almost. And that's kind of the way my parents have always been. They always led with the attachment being with or the meaning coming from interactions with humans and being together and behavior with each other and being kind and having conversations and communication and leading with the humanness of us as a whole, being generous and being open and all of those things, I think that we has been really, really helpful. And the reason that I say that I feel sometimes alone and I'm not sure if it's an immigrant thing or not, or maybe it's just the disparity that I feel sometimes with people that are from the United States, like people who are getting through and through, you know, that have lived here all this time. It's like, you know, when somebody like left the, you know, my past neighbor who is now gone and this is her house, well, it was her house that when she left those couches, my thought process as somebody from the U.S. would be like, let's just get rid of them. We need to get the new ones. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I open the door, I'm like, wow, these are so cool. And I don't really need any more. These are great. These are fine. I mean, mind you, I am shopping around because I do want to buy my own set. But it doesn't feel like, like, I have to get a couch. <laughs> we have to get a couch today. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't have that feeling. It's like they work. We have places to sit down. They use it like utilitarianism of furniture and furnishings to me leads the way. And it's like, they work. That works. To me, it's like, I'd rather invest in getting the top of the line MacBook Pro, which I have all the tech. (laughs) Like we have 50,000 iPads. We have an iPhone. I spend a lot of money on my tech because I am, that's what I value. Right. And so having an old couch that's, I don't know how old or two of them actually. Why? Like, I'd rather buy myself another laptop. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or like, I just would rather buy like a thousand dollar video camera than a thousand dollar couch. Like, it just, I don't understand that. So anyway, that for me feels like a gift because I don't have that attachment. And my partner is great at repurposing stuff. Right now, I'm just trying to be like, okay, now it's time to stop with that. (laughs) Because he built my one child's bed. And I just bought her a frame and a new mattress because she was sleeping in this tiny little twin mattress that, again, was given to us. And she just used it to like it just. It was time. It was trash. It's trash. So I bought her a frame and I bought her a new mattress and whatnot. And then Randy had immediate like at first he he built her the bed from wood. Like he just went and bought the wood and built the frame and put the thing. And that's what it was. And so when I bought her this thing, he went and he repurposed all of the wood. And now he's added it into our like laundry room and he created this like tall table so that I can put all the laundry on. Now it never, none of the things he tears <laughs> apart ever go to be thrown away. It's all repurposed into, and I don't know how many times that wood's already been repurposed. Like he'll just like build something else. Like it's just all the time. Like every time we have a piece of wood that is going to be, he takes it apart and he reuses it again to make something else. It's lovely in some ways. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I really want to buy a shelving unit. Don't want you to just create one okay? So but, that's interesting, but it's great. I mean, it's like he's always been that way. And that's like something that's incredibly amazing, and and he's got the skills to be able to do stuff like that. He'll do it, right? Right? And so I feel that pull now. Where I felt that it's hindered me is in the fear, like in the fact that I still get like the anxiety around even opening up my bank account, even though it's like just opening it up, it's out of control. Having to deal with any government, like tax stuff. Oh my God. Just the level of anxiety that it gives me to even just see something come in the mail. And usually it's like nothing scary. It literally is just a notification. It's nothing scary. I freak out. Mm. And having to even work on my taxes every year, it's... Before we jump into today's content, keep your
0: ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special
1: just for you. Such a huge lift. It's such a huge lift because it's like I want it to just go away. I just don't want anybody because it's so scary to me and there's nothing to be scared about. I don't even know how to deal with it. Yeah, we know it's not, but it's something inside of us. It just
0: something triggers and. And who knows? And maybe that's, I think, you know, journal and those type of things, that's something you can probably dig into.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. And I've i have had many years to think about all of these things. So I still have a lot of that. Paying bills. I really, I get anxious about not having enough. Mm-hmm. I get anxious about phone calls. Because my mom, there was a point there where I, I know we had creditors calling the house all the time. And they were like, don't touch the phone. Mm. Mm-hmm. <gasps> and so then like, don't answer the phone. Don't. And like her telling me like, don't answer the phone. I was like, okay. And so just knowing that I couldn't answer the phone, don't answer the phone. Cause it's those people. I don't even know what that is. All of that stuff. And the messages that I would hear and, and watching her freak out over it. And then me kind of digging that in. Like that's one of the reasons I mean, in addition to many other things, I'm all very, very, I'm very antisocial. So like, even if somebody's calling me on the phone, that's like, I just don't even like to hear the phone ring. It stresses me out. I don't care if it's my best friend. In fact, actually, that's technology has been really great because everybody that I do want to hear from has a special ring. So I know that whoever's ringing, then I know that it's somebody like, My husband or, you know, Jessica, who is my partner for She podcast, they have special rings and they have special tones on my phone. So when that rings, then I know it's them. It doesn't make anything else. But if anybody rings that I don't recognize, it immediately freaks me out. Like it just freaks me out. So there's a lot of stuff like, you know, turning off unknown callers so that they never ring has been the best creation for ios devices ever so that's constantly on for me so if you're not in my contacts my phone never rings. <laughs> i don't know if androids have that i'm an android person i have apple oh.
0: stuff minus the phone yeah I, I feel like i'll be taken over by apple so i that's just my own thing but yeah. oh my goodness this is awesome. Now, I'm curious because as I mentioned to those listening, Elsie is a podcast veteran. In fact, she has been an inductee in the Podcast Hall of Fame. I don't know if she's the only one, but I believe she's the only Latina.
1: <laughs> yes, I am. I am the Which only is Latina,
0: amazing. Sure. But you haven't always been a podcaster. You have been a yoga instructor. You've worked in Hollywood as an actress. So talk to us a little bit about the evolution of Elsie and maybe what aspects of your money story has had a part of this, because there's always seems to be some sort of connection as to your past to what you're doing now. I'm taking a quick second to interrupt your listening to remind you. This show relies on your support to continue to grow. If you get a ton of value, it would mean everything if you can hit the follow button on wherever you listen to, share with a friend, and give us a quick and honest review. Gracias y te mando muchos abrazos.
1: You know, in terms of my money story, I mean, first of all, yes, I started working at a very young age, well, 15 and a half, as soon as I could, I've always been really like what I wanted to do. I did, Mm -hmm. you know, that was, that's like been something that I've just, my poor parents. So I got a job right away when I was 15 and a half. It wasn't a big job. Like I was selling hot dogs on a stick. You know, I don't know if you know the company hot dog on a stick with the girls with the big thing on their head. You're going to have to no, search, put I'll it, have to look for you, it. Y'all, I know that there's people listening that are like, I know what that is. That's, that's more of a, it's a West Coast, California thing. It's a company called essentially, or I don't even know if they're still alive or still going, but it was, it started at the beach in a small little area. And it's literally called hot dogs on a stick. And everybody else knows these as corn dogs, right? They're dipped in batter and that kind of stuff. But they were called hot dogs on a stick. We were not allowed to call them corn dogs, even though that's what they were. Okay. (laughs) And so, and we all had to wear these little outfits. They were like these red shorts. And then there were tank tops that had huge thick stripes, yellow, red, and white and blue stripes, like down. And then we had this hat that was like, essentially, you're wearing a square Mm -hmm. on top of your head with a little like front part, like a cap, right? Small little cap. And you had to put your hair up so your hair was not seen like this. And they only sold hot dogs on a stick, cheese sticks, zucchini sticks, and lemonade. That's it. That's all they sold. And so my first job was working for them at the fair, at the local fair, and so all I had to do was like literally go up. The lines were so long that I had to walk and ask everybody for their orders. Like how many hot, that would two, like, you know, three hot dogs and one cheese. And I was going like, okay, that's going to be, you know, and I would have to add it in my head because it's like a $1.25 for each. So I would have to, anyway, that was my first job. And I continued working from then on. And I got myself into school that way, meaning not that I, paid for my own school from hot dogs on the stick. But, you know, I continued in school too because I got myself a scholarship. I essentially applied to be financially independent. Like I applied to essentially break up from my parents. Like, I don't know, but not in a bad way, but like in a-
0: Financial way. You know, so
1: that I was like essentially showing- the government that I wasn't getting any support from them. And I did it for them because they couldn't pay. I got into a private university and I did have a lot of financial aid and I got scholarships, but not full. And even then they still had to pay. They had to pay for school was just too much. I mean, I just, I couldn't do it. So I kind of behind their back, went and I did this so that I could break up with that and then take it on myself. And I was able to pay for my own university at a private university through work-study, grants, scholarships, and financial aid. So all of that stuff was paid for through, and I put myself essentially through school. But I would work, I would work a lot. I would work locally through work-study and then I would get jobs outside hosting and things like that, like at restaurants. And so I supplemented my income. So I always paid for myself. So after, once I started school, I just continued to work my butt off. And that's been something that I've done all my life. And thankfully, you know, I've always been blessed to be able to work and I don't care. And I think that that's one of the things that for me, has been such a blessing. And the reason that I've reinvented myself so many different times is that I don't ever define myself by how I make my money. I just work. (laughs) I work. Yes, I started getting jobs in terms of acting. I was paid for acting, but I never thought like, this is the only way that I'm going to make money. I also would bartend and I would serve tables and I'd try to get jobs at like bookstores and all of that stuff to me was just like more income so that I could have the life that I wanted to have. And for me, the life that I wanted to have was simply not having to ask my parents for money. That was essentially it. It was like just to get myself, you know, I have, I'm paying rent. I'm paying for my own food. I'm doing what I can with all of this stuff. And so that's kind of how I transitioned and when I went and acting stuff, that was the first time I think that I saw the amount of money that was available out there. And I was shocked by that because I remember I worked my butt off to make, I can't say minimum wage. Yeah, I was basically just barely living. I mean, I, I was fine. Like there was nothing wrong. I had everything I needed, but it was always like just enough. Mm. And I had $10 left in the bank. Yes, I can go get a cup. I mean, I remember... I would go get a cup of coffee and a bagel. And then some days I would get a larger cup of coffee because that was a little more money. And that would like, I had everything budgeted. And so if I had that extra amount, I would just get the larger thing or two bagels. So, and, but you know, but I did all of that stuff. And then, but when I started to act and I started serving tables, I was like, holy monkey <laughs> with the cash people. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, I think that's why it's so hard to leave jobs at restaurants because you're walking with hundreds of dollars of cash in your pocket that you just get right away. You know, it's so hard to break up with that. I served tables for 10 years because the money was so great. I mean, it was so great. And I was able to pay for a living. I lived in Beverly Hills. <laughs> that sounds so funny. I got a rent control apartment there. But it's still, though, I was able to pay for it almost solely from serving tables in a great part of town. But because I just had, you know, that. But the acting stuff was astounding how much money it is. Astounding. And no wonder people want to do it. I'm still getting residuals and the last job I had was in 2001. Mind you, the residuals are not huge. I mean, I still get checks for like $12, $15. Once in a while I'll get 34 and a few checks come in for like 3 cents. <laughs> but I mean, just to think about that that I'm still getting residuals it's from 2001 and I didn't even have like notable work. I didn't. I remember getting, I did, a, I made a movie and I had to go to, um, the Florida Keys towards that air, Palm beach is where they put us up. I think I was there for two weeks. No, actually not. It was three weeks. I was there for three weeks and they would pay you for the week. Right. So you would get whatever that was. I can't remember how much money that was, but I didn't know that you also got a stipend. So then like, I remember I went there, right. So they put you up. They give you all the things, everything. You don't have to like amazing apartment, amazing apartment that they put me up in. And then one of the weeks I was off, like I wasn't even on, but I was still getting paid, but I was off and I would get, I think it was at that time, $440 cash a week. That's what I would, I was like, (sighs) and so I would get the thing and I was like, and that was for my food. And I was like, who spends that money on food? who spends that much money on food? Like I didn't understand. So what I did is I saved the majority of it and I went on like to the Florida Keys for the week that I was off and spent my stipend in an actual vacation. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's when you spend it to do all the things then.
0: That is amazing. So you are doing well with acting with Waiting tables, what led you to podcasting? Because this, it feels like, and you're so good in this field that this is where you're going to stay. It feels like at this moment, you might correct me, but
1: <laughs> so what led you? <laughs> no, but it, you know what it was? I think it was the fact that I didn't have any creative control and I didn't have any control or self expression. My soul was dying. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what you're doing your soul dies in lots of different places and that and, you know i became a yoga teacher in the middle of all of that stuff too because i could no longer handle the constant not knowing and because that's what happens with sometimes when you're looking to continue to work as an actor the majority of the time that you are doing things you essentially have a full time job you don't get paid for or you're constantly going out for right. jobs Constantly. And I couldn't handle that anymore. I couldn't handle that anymore. And I wasn't equipped at that time with the skill set to pursue it. I wasn't 100% in. When you're in something 100%, you will make it work. And I wasn't, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And it was making me feel really awful. Like I just couldn't do it. And then waiting tables, even though it was fantastic, because it did give me a lot of freedom is that there comes a point when you just no longer want to be in an environment where everybody's drinking and there's just so many drugs there. I'm telling you, like LA and then the night scene, it's cray cray. And I've never been that person. I've always been so like such a good girl. I did get, you know, and it's too much alcohol, too much sleeping, like coming home after two in the morning because you shift and you're so tired and you just want to keep drinking or you know, it's just the lifestyle wasn't driving with me anymore. I didn't want that in my life. So I kind of transitioned into the opposite, which was yoga. And then I started teaching yoga classes and I, I was doing very, very well. I, I immediately started to cover my expenses because again, I was getting cash on hand with a lot of folks that I was doing one-on-one yoga sessions with. And I was asking for quite a lot of money for people to work with me one-on-one. And in LA, the market feeds it. The market gives you the money that you're asking for at that time. Mind you, I did study a lot. So it's not like I was just like, you know, but I kind of transitioned through that. And in the process is when I discovered podcasting. When I started to look through my my computer, I had gotten that's why tech for me is so such a huge thing. Like I got a little iPod and I found what that was like. And then it started to really fill my heart with that creative thing where it's like, ooh. I can do this on my own. I don't need, there was no gatekeepers. I can create the show I want. Like all of the stuff that Hollywood shows you, you can't do. I found that the door was completely open with podcasting. And so I had immediate dreams of creating all kinds of really wonderful things. And I started to test out doing that Mm -hmm. through yoga classes, recording yoga classes, because I wanted to do something. I knew the development of a proper, in quote, show would require a big lift, but I wanted to figure out how to do the thing first and to have the least amount of resistance as to what the content was and I thought, "Hey, I'm teaching all these classes. I'll record a class and put it out as a podcast, and that'll help me figure out all the tech part and whether or not I can do it and Then I fell in love with it. It was like, "Wow, this is so cool," and the community was phenomenal, and I just really dove into it, and at that time, it was just starting out so Having a woman that was shocking Mm -hmm. that primarily lots of men started, right? And people, types of men that I was not in contact with, but they were incredibly helpful to me and supportive of me. And it expanded my world in so many different ways. But I kind of stood out because I was kind of like, What are you doing? Like, I mean, all kinds of ways, like you're doing, you have a podcast because of the way that I looked. And then you have a yoga podcast. It's do you watch it? No, you listen to it. You you have a yo- audio yoga. Like it was just so confusing to so many people that people remembered me, and I was so excited about it that I also called a lot of attention to myself because I was so enthusiastic about it. All I can't see that. that I can't um, see that. I know. I know. <laughs> so shocking. So yeah, I kind of like was raised within it because I had my hands in so many different parts. It's how I kind of fell into it. And I, I'm still, I love the medium still so much. The medium is for me, it's been fundamentally shifting as a human being in so many different ways, the medium itself, and particularly as a consumer, as a listener Listening has impacted my life more than working in podcasting. Interesting. And so that's why I'm such a huge advocate for the medium. And I feel like I will be a podcast listener for life, if you will. Um, And I've been, again, super blessed of just being able to make a living off of it, which is, again, very, you can't craft path. And so a lot of times when I look back, you're like, how did you do it? Well, I don't think you can do what I did because I really didn't do anything. (laughs) I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. The majority of things that have happened, I happen to have been in the right place in the right time. So I recognize, I don't even know just the blessings that I've had to be in the, perfect place so many different times in my life where I've pivoted and had essentially not very much friction in transitioning from one thing to the next.
0: Oh my goodness. This has been such a treat, Elsie, because I know you (laughs) as a podcaster. I have been listening to you and Jess for years and you've been such a support. So it's been such a treat to hear another side of Elsie where she talks a little bit about money, about her money story. And it's been so awesome. And I'm also curious, side note, because it just crossed my mind. Maybe you are the first Latino podcaster. Oh. I'm wondering, because that's another <gasps> thing to put in the books. <laughs> I'm wondering if oh you're the first gosh. Latino
1: podcaster. I don't know. Just I mean, we can definitely are. back into it. <laughs> And I think that maybe I could kind of say this, maybe like quantify a little bit more to keep it in the U S because there might've been some shows, you know, outside in that we didn't know smaller shows or something like that, or not even smaller shows, but shows that started back in the day. Like at that time, there was not that much communication. You know what I mean? Like you, things went away a lot of the time. So I would say if we keep it to the, United States of America, or possibly the northern, the northern hemisphere. Yeah, you might be onto something.
0: It just—I got sidetracked, but yeah, that's that. That was a thought. I had to throw it out there. So thank you, Elsie, for being Uh here. Like I said, it was such a treat and to hear a different side of Elsie. You brought in so many nuggets because you talked about the importance of the value of how you spent. And how, really, your money story, from what I gather, just your money story of there was never enough, and there was some points of humbleness and and being frugal, but out of that, and I may be wrong, but just in hearing you speak because you mentioned how you saved, it sounds like it has served you well in the purposes of how you manage your money in terms of saving and I haven't heard anything you didn't share anything about debt, so I'm feeling like. Even though some of those things you feel like have, I can't say have held you back. I think it has served you well in some purposes. So it's just very interesting to hear that. So thank you for sharing all of that.
1: Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So
0: yes, finally, years later, we're here. (laughs) I made it. Thanks again, Elsie. Thank you. What did you think? Honestly, I don't know why it took until this year for that light bulb to go off and invite her to the show. It's funny how much I have listened to her podcast that she co-hosts, but who knows what I was thinking. I'm sure I've thought of it before, but I got sidetracked, distracted, and then never followed through with it. But it's better late than never though, right? If you enjoyed learning about Elsie, you definitely want to connect with her more, and you can do that on Twitter. She posts a lot of really good stuff, insightful, thoughtful, thought-provoking. You can do that. Just look for The Elsie Escobar. I will link that up in the show notes so you can go follow her and connect with her. I also want to share with you that it is that time again for Financially Strong Latina. We will be announcing the details soon of where to register, where to grab your ticket. And if you didn't register last year, if you're not receiving emails from me, be sure to put your name on our wait list so you can be amongst the first to be notified. Again, if you don't receive emails from me, chances are you aren't on my list. And chances are maybe you didn't register, you weren't there at Financially Strong Latina. So make sure that you get on the wait list. You can do that at financiallystronglatina.com. That is financiallystronglatina.com. Now, if you did register last year and you've been receiving my emails, you don't need to do anything because you will be notified as soon as we open the doors for registration. And that information is available in the show notes. Next week on the podcast, we will be celebrating 300 episodes. That is so crazy to even say 300 episodes. And for that celebrations, both my sons have agreed to take over and interview me. Don't miss it. Bueno, pues, that is everything for today. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to tune into the show. I know there's a lot of podcasts to choose from. You can check out the show notes at jenhempill.com forward slash 299 to refer to everything you need from the show. And remember... Being the reina of your money starts at this moment simply by claiming it. I believe in you, and so should you. Nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. Chao!